And this is God's word. It's an interesting passage. It's, it's about healing. And it's, it's rather, it's an obscure historical account. It's almost disturbing if you read it. But if you look into the truth of what the text is saying, it's incredibly enlightening, incredibly illumining. Here's a summary. The Israelites, God's people, they're wandering in the desert. And God gave them manna. He provided manna, which was a kind of a doughy resin that people used to, to make into a bread. Uh, lots of pastries, tasty pastries. And so he provided food for them on a daily basis. It was sufficient for them just to last a day, but the people grew impatient. They were wandering, and there was no bread. There was no water. They detested the manna. They got tired of it after a while. So what does God do? He sends these venomous snakes. In Hebrew, the word venomous snakes, it's actually fiery snakes. These fiery snakes come down, bite the people, and they die. So the people turn back, and they appeal to Moses. And they come back to God, and they say, Moses, please pray on our behalf. So Moses prays. And the Lord tells Moses, here's what you got to do. You take a pole, and you make a snake, and you put it up on a pole. And anyone who looks at the snake will live. And so that's what Moses does. He makes a snake out of bronze, puts it up on a pole, and everyone who's been bitten by the snake, who's able to look at the snake on the pole, lives. Interesting narrative. Now, lots of people struggle with this text because it seems, especially in the coastline states, the blue states, that this is very typical of the angry God in the Old Testament. It seems like such a disproportionate response, right? The patrons don't like the chef's cooking. So what does he do? He condemns them to death. It's almost like he's overreacting. And yet what I want to appeal to you today is that this is not a disproportionate response. It's an actual remarkably proportionate response. God, through this text, he's providing a mirror so we can all see who we really are, so that we can see ourselves. And in seeing ourselves, we can actually experience real healing. So three things we're going to see today. It's not go eat, go home, go watch the game. It's going to be uh, the problem of sin, the, the pain of sin, the prescription for sin. The problem of sin, the pain of sin, the prescription for sin. First, the problem of sin. You see this in verses 4 to 5. God leads the Israelites in the desert. How does he lead them? Through a radiant cloud during the day and a radiant fire at night. And so the people, they experience, they see God's presence every day, all day. And God provides for them. He gives them manna. And it's, it's called the bread of heaven. Every morning, it's sufficient for them to last through the day. It's a special bread, a special food. And it's sweet, and they can make it into pastries, and it's good. And the bread of heaven, this manna, it represents the power of God. It represents the provision of God. It represents his commitment to his people that he will not let them wander in a desert for long, and he will not let them die. So it represents the presence of God. He's leading them through a cloud, by a fire, but he's near. The manna represents that he's also near. He's to the taste. He's, he's to be digested. But what happens? They reject it. They detest this miserable food. They reject the manna. And the Bible says specifically here that they were impatient. And this is the problem of sin. Our grumbling, our complaining, it's an indicator of our dissatisfaction. They're, they're so dissatisfied. Why? It says we're impatient. We're incredibly impatient. Why do we grumble? 
it's because we're dissatisfied. Scripture says that no matter what kind of blessings, not just the hard stuff, but the blessings that we experience, we're never satisfied. We're never grateful. And this is our condition. In this passage, look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. In this passage, the Lord sends these venomous snakes. The NIV, if you read the NIV, it says that they're venomous. But if you read from the ESV or the KJV, which is more probably true to the actual Hebrew, it's fiery snakes. Saraf, that's the, name, that's the word. The Lord sends fiery snakes down to bite the Israelites. Now, they're not snakes that were on fire, but rather... They had a fiery venom that when they bite you, it creates this raging thirst. It creates this, this uh, swelling and a raging fever and a fever that creates, results in a raging thirst that consumes you ultimately so that you die of thirst. And so the thirst will consume you. And um, what's the scripture saying here? This is a picture of our souls. This is why we're so often dissatisfied, why we're never grateful. Deep inside, there's, there's, a, there's a fire in our souls that creates a spiritual thirsting, a deep sense of dissatisfaction. And this is why the fiery serpents, it's not disproportional. God's sending these serpents. It's actually a picture of who we really are, absolutely proportional, because it's a mirror image of who we really are. What the Israelites are experiencing on the outside is a picture of what's really going on on the inside, the picture of their inner center. This is why we're working so hard to find a sense of worth. This is why we look to wealth. This is why we look to our status. This is why we look to power. This is why we look to our relationships. Always looking to find a sense of worth. We're always thirsting spiritually. How do we know this? Genesis chapter 3. What do you see? Paradise. It's, everything's perfect. Everything's perfect, and, and you can do everything except one thing, God says. You just cannot eat from the fruit of this one tree. And in Genesis chapter 3, there's another serpent. There's another snake. And this snake comes to Eve and talks to her. And what does he say? He says, this isn't fair. God said you can do everything but can you really do everything? What was he doing? He's injecting spiritual venom. Spiritual venom so that we, we challenge the fairness of God. We challenge the goodness of God. We're challenging the faithfulness of God. And it creates this thirst inside of us because we start to say, wait a second, I'm starting to get impatient because all of a sudden I'm not satisfied. We're talking in paradise. Everything is perfect and yet dissatisfaction starts to set in. And ever since the garden, what happens? There's dissociation. There's alienation. There's dislocation. We're starting to challenge God. And since then, this raging thirst. Even paradise couldn't satisfy us. And so we were driven out. We were driven out of paradise. In the 1990s, there was a, a movie with Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer called Tombstone. And uh, at the end of this movie, you have uh, Kurt Russell, who played Wyatt Earp. It's the story of Wyatt Earp, who's about to meet his arch enemy. And he knows that his arch enemy is actually more skilled with a gun than he is. And so he goes to Doc Holliday, played by Val Kilmer, and he asks him, what kind of man is this Johnny Ringo? 
And Doc Holliday responds. He says, a man like Ringo has got a great big hole right in the middle of him. He can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to ever fill it. What he's saying is that he's, he's thirsting. That's the condition of our souls. We're always thirsting. We can never kill enough. We can never steal enough. We can never inflict enough pain to ever fill the hole because sin has resulted in our dissatisfaction with everything that we are, everything that we have. There's this great, deep insecurity and inadequacy. And so we're always looking to fill this deep hole left in sin with things, with material possessions, with uh, a pursuit of wealth, relationships, power. I uh, probably read this quote many times before, but Madonna, in an interview in Vanity Fair in 1991 with Lynn Hirschberg, famous writer, um, a columnist or journalist, writes or says this in an interview, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear, to discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Numbers chapter 21 teaches us that what's happening to the bodies of the Israelites, their thirst is consuming them, is the exact mirror image of what's happening in their souls. The problem of sin, a raging thirst. You're never satisfied. That's why we're always overworking. That's why we're always insecure. That's why we're always afraid. That's why we're always impatient. That's why we're always grumbling. That's why we're always down on ourselves, unless there's a cure, unless there's a treatment. What's the second point? The pain of sin. We talked about the problem of sin, now the pain of sin. Two things. Sin leads to alienation, and sin leads to suffering. First, alienation. Verses 4 to 5. The people spoke against God and Moses, it said. In other words, before the reality of the problem actually hit them, their problem was already alienating them. Before the venomous snakes came down, they were already distancing themselves from God and from Moses. And you see this in patterns of our lives. If you think about your career and our marriages, our children, just your apathy. Once you begin to suffer, however, you start to wake up. It isn't until we suffer many times that we see an urgency for change. I mean, I don't know how many people have come to me over the years and said, you know, my boyfriend broke up with me or my girlfriend broke up with me. I lost my job. I'm suffering from this illness or or I've lost a loved one. I don't know how many people, countless people who've come to me and shared these incidents, these events in their lives that what happened? It triggered a change. It woke them up and said, you know, I really need to change. I really need to make change in my life. Why? Because before suffering actually hits us, we begin to complain about our spouses. We complain about our children. We complain about our place in life. We complain about our bodies. Before suffering hits hits us, we take these things for granted. But what happens when it hits? We realize that we've been impatient, incredibly impatient, that we've detested God and his provision for our maturity. 
those, those triggers are there for our maturity. And scripture, throughout the Bible, you see that, that we're really fools. Fools look for replacements for these external circumstances in our lives. You're unhappy with your spouse? You get a new spouse. You're unhappy with your job? It must be the job. We get a new job. You're unhappy with your friends? You've got to get new friends. Wisdom teaches us to look, to learn, to grow, to change in these circumstances. Not to replace the external, but to replace the internal. So what happens in this text? Verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. What's still happening? Suffering is hit. And all of a sudden, the Israelites, a deep connection is made between their grumbling and their suffering. It doesn't always happen. But once in a while, you recognize a connection between what you're suffering and what you're grumbling about. And God, that God is using these things to bring us back. Verse 7, what's happening? They were once alienated, dislocated, dissociated. They're returning. They come back to Moses. And they come back to the Lord. They say, we have been distant. Will you pray on our behalf? They're starting to see the connection between their suffering and with their sin. And they realize it's not general. They're not talking about general sin, general brokenness. They're talking about specific sin, specific brokenness in their lives. They saw that their sin has caught up with them. And it often results in suffering. It doesn't always result in suffering, but it often results in suffering. Not all suffering is caused by specific sin in our lives, but your specific sin, it can become a lifestyle and if it, as it becomes a lifestyle, it will catch up to you. It's going to result in pain. Here's an example. If you live a life of lies, if you live a life of lies, the lies are going to catch up to you. It's going to ruin your families. It's going to ruin reputation. It's going to ruin trust. If you live a life of malice, the hate is going to change you. The hate is going to ruin you. The hate is going to ruin your families. The hate's going to ruin your reputation. The hate's going to ruin your trust. Remember the, the book Scarlet Letter? One of the most famous uh, books of its time, Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter. You have Arthur Dimsdale, the, uh, the preacher. He lived a life of lies, and it destroyed him. You have Roger Chillingworth. He lived a life of malice, and it destroyed him. Here, the Israelites draw back to Moses. They draw back to God. The alienation, the dissociation is going away. What does that tell us? We need deep community in our lives. They came back to Moses. They said, pray for us. You never make sense of the trouble and suffering on your own. It's very difficult to make sense out of trouble and suffering on our own. But what happens here? When you have friends in your life that can speak truth into your life, verse 5, it's the end of complaining. Well, verse 5, they're complaining, but verse 7, they've returned. In just two or three short verses, they go from complaining and they return. Moses then, verses 7 to 8, what does he do? He's praying. True friend. He's praying for them. We need deep community in our lives. We need deep community, a friend that's going to be able to come to you and address deep-rooted sins in our lives. Make friends. You've got to make friends. You've got you to get yourself intimately into community. Here they draw back. And what happens when they draw back? One, you see the end of the alienation. But also, it's the end of the blame shifting. In Genesis chapter 3, 
God asks Adam and Eve, what happened? Adam blames Eve. Here we see the end of blame shifting. They say, we sinned. It's not just he sinned. It's just not we sinned in general, but we sinned against you and against the Lord. And finally, what they say is they say, pray for us. They don't say, we're going to pray now. They say, pray for us. In other words, I'm so weak. I now see who I really am that it is utterly impossible for me to just do better, to earn my way back into God's favor. I need help outside of myself. I'm trapped in my sin. I'm trapped in weakness. If you've been a part of community groups over the past week, we just began the, the introduction to the book. And in the introduction, Rosemary Rose Miller quotes from Martin Luther, who says that we are not, we're like caterpillars trapped in a ring of fire. There's no way out. That's our sin. We're trapped in a ring of fire. The only way out is if somebody reaches down from above and lifts us out. They're saying, pray for us, Moses. So we see the problem of sin, our dissatisfaction, the God-sized hole that we're always looking to fill, the, the thirst. We're talking about the pain of sin, alienation, dissociation, dislocation, and our suffering. What's the last point? What's the prescription? How do we get healed from our sin? And we see this in verses 8 and 9. The Lord says to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses, that's what he does. He made a brown snake and and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the brown snake, he lived. Very enigmatic. God tells Moses to tell the people, behold the snake. Behold the snake and you'll live. What's a snake? I mean, if you think about it, it's a slap in the face. The snake was a symbol of the enemy. Ever since Genesis 3, the snake was a symbol of the curse. It was a symbol of the enemy. The very thing that was biting these people and killing them, God says, actually, tell them to behold it and they'll actually be saved. Look to the thing that's actually killing you for life, for healing. These people, they were bit. They were dying of snakes. They were, they were dying because of the curse. And yet God says, look to them. Look to the snake and you're going to live. And today, to this day, what do you see? Anytime you see an ambulance pass by, anytime you approach a, a medical facility, you see the pole and the snake. It has become a symbol, not of a curse, but of healing. This passage didn't really make sense throughout the Old Testament. People try to make sense out of this text in the Old Testament. They can't. Look to the curse and you'll be healed. Until centuries later, Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. Jesus heals the blind man, touches the leper and heals him, tells the paralytic, the invalid who's been by the pool for 38 years, he says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus is healing Lord of the Rings, in the Return of the King, the final book, there is a prophecy that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known, speaking and writing of Aragorn, the hidden king. We remember that. We look to that. Here's Jesus healing as he's in his ministry. And in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, Jesus is explaining this passage. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, but have eternal life. What's the prescription for, for the healing of our sin? He says, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you the meaning of this snake because it's hidden from you in many ways. It, it was, it's perplexing. Just as people back then wandering in the desert, look to the snake, look to the curse for healing. Just as they would be healed physically, they will one day look to the Son of Man who will be lifted up in the same way. And if they looked to him, they would find ultimate healing. They would find spiritual, ultimate spiritual healing. And, and in other words, what he's saying is, Nicodemus, I am that snake. I will be the symbol of the curse. I will be the one that will be lifted up, not in glory, not in honor, and not in power, but in shame, in weakness. And I'll be lifted up, and people will look to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God on the cross an incredible legal transfer took place. Jesus would become the symbol of the curse. On the cross, a legal transfer took place, a double transfer. Jesus became alienated. Jesus became dislocated. Jesus became dissociated. And Jesus suffered. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this. Jesus left paradise for us. He's saying, I have become forsaken. I've not only left paradise, perfection, eternal glory, I've left that so that ultimately I would be kicked out of paradise on the cross. I would suffer the ultimate alienation. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, it is not just alienation from one another that I'm experiencing right now. People are insulting me. People have put me in shame. I have become forsaken from the one person that I've been intimately joined with, that has become my sense of worth. This is the healing of my thirst. But then on the cross, he says, I thirst. And when he was thirsty, he's not, it's not just physical thirst he's experiencing. He's not saying that, what he's basically saying is, I can deal with the cross. I can deal with the crown of thorns. I can experience the nails on my hands and my feet. I can, I can withstand the insults of the people, the shame that I'm experiencing, the alienation from them. But on the cross, what he's saying, I've become alienated from my Father, completely forsaken. On the cross, Jesus experienced hell. What is hell? Separation from God. He experienced hell on the cross, which means that on the cross, God experienced hell. Separation from the sun. And that's why he cries out, I thirst. The deepest, innermost thirst that a per- person can experience. He has become sin, and in so doing, he is experiencing the raging thirst, the eternal cosmic dissatisfaction of being separated from God, and he's wandering. He's lost on the cross. Why did he do that? Jesus suffered the alienation so we can experience connection. 
Jesus suffered the suffering, the ultimate suffering, so that our suffering is not used to turn us away from the Father, but turn us to the Father so that we can wake up. Jesus experienced the cross, the pain, the suffering, the shame. Why? So that we can become accepted. Not rejected, but known. Loved, embraced, brought in. We need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. Just as in John chapter 3, we need, we need a holy God that loves us. And Jesus says, it's not, just, it's not just that you need to become better, Nicodemus. Nicodemus mastered the art of being better, the art of being nicer, composed in a system of 635 laws that his people would follow. Jesus says, that's not what you need, not another law. You need healing. You need reconciliation. You need a new birth. The cure for the poison that is raging in our system, our operating system here, is Jesus taking the poison on our behalf. That he would take the cosmic thirst so that he can say, come to me if you are thirsty and springs of water will flow out from you. The ultimate disproportion, the ultimate disproportionate act of God is not the suffering that we endured, but the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross, his own son, the perfect man. He absorbed our debts and transferred his sonship. You cannot work to earn God's favor, but if you, have, but if you want and if you, or if you have a vital relationship with the Father, then that's the end of your wandering. That's the end of the search. That's the end of the thirst. If you think about it, that's going to not change your job per se. I don't know if you're going to love your job more as a result, but it will heal your dissatisfaction in it. It will heal the dissatisfaction of marriage at times. It will heal the, the disappointment we often experience in our children. Because we're no longer using our spouse or using our jobs, using our wealth or lack of wealth, using our, our bodies, you know, our looks, our vanity, or our children to give us a sense of worth but because our sense of worth has been healed. We found it in the cross of Christ. Our hearts are so restless, but we can find our rest in Christ. What do you do when you get this? What do you do to get this? You behold. You know, when you're looking, it doesn't take any work to see. You just see. You just behold. In the same way, it doesn't take any work to behold the gospel. You just see it. If the Spirit of God is working in your life right now, you see it. You start to trust it. You can resist it all you want. You can't resist it. You're going to see it. You're going to trust it. Trust in the perfect record of Christ. He did everything we were required to do. That's the healing of our inadequacy. Trust in the perfect death of Christ. He suffered for our sakes. That's the healing of our dissatisfaction. That's going to be our joy. Because why? Isaiah 53. The prophecy of the suffering servant. You read it in the call to worship. But the tail end of that chapter, it says he will be satisfied in his suffering. What was his satisfaction? To see his people come together and redeemed. 
That was his joy. Hebrews chapter 12. Why did Jesus endure the cross, scorning its shame? For the joy that was set before him. We are his joy. Right now, if you're pursuing your own desires, irreligiously, a lot of the times we live our weeks functionally without God in our lives. So basically, we're irreligious people throughout the week. If you're living and pursuing your desires that way, and you're dissatisfied in community, you're dissatisfied you know, with your place in life, and you're empty, you get that empty experience in your life, what are you doing? You're working. You're looking for ways to work. You're working for love. You're working for acceptance. You're thirsting. On the flip side, you could be living a very religious life. You can be living a very moral, good life, just pursuing good character. And you know what happens? You start to judge people and you start to hate people. You start to be critical of other people. And you look at your success and how good and moral your life is and how poorly everyone else is living their lives. What are you doing? You're working. You're working. And you're thirsting. You're thirsting for recognition. You're thirsting for honor and for glory when all that has already been given to you in Christ. Jesus says, come to me. If anyone is thirsty, you just have to recognize, confess that you're thirsty. That's the only reason why you would come, if you're actually thirsty. Nothing else is going to satisfy but Jesus alone. He is my joy, sufficiently. Jesus says, if you come, streams of living water, streams of water will flow from you. This week, let's behold the cross. Let's fix our eyes on Christ. It's not about how confidently you're looking. It's not about how long you've been looking. It's not about how even accurately many times that you've been looking. It's about where you're looking, the direction. Behold the cross. When we sing in response today, Let's remember the words of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is a very remarkable figure. Time magazine rated him the top five most influential figures in world history. It's an incredible distinction. And here's the Apostle Paul. Most of his life lived in bitterness because he was, and if you read Philippians chapter three, it's remarkable because he categorizes, he catalogs all the things that he held as, as what he used to prove himself over the years in his life. And it's left him bitter, and it's left him angry, so bitter that when the small sect of people rising up and professing their faith in Christ, he wanted to murder them because it was threatening his sense of right. It was threatening his sense of worth. And here's Paul, this bitter, angry, discontented man in Philippians chapter 4 says, even if I have nothing, I've learned what it means to be content in all circumstances. Remarkable figure. Where's the transformation? How did it happen? The next verse he says, I realized I can do all things in Christ. All things in Christ who strengthens me. An amazing confession. When he was at his best, that's when he was most bitter. It's when he realized he was thirsty and he clung to Christ that streams of living water flowed out from him. Can we acknowledge our brokenness as we sing in response today to our final song? Can we acknowledge that only Christ can heal? And can we let that heal us? Let's let the words, the reminders of this text heal us again. Can we do that together? Let's look 
and not let our lives inflate us, not let our status deflate us, not let uh, the world around us define us or elate us. But let's look to Christ, the only one that can heal. Let's pray.